Hello and welcome to Conversations from the ANF podcast. In this episode, we cross the Atlantic to speak to Brady. He shares his experience of adoption as a 13-year-old and how that informed his understanding of adoption. With his wife, Andrea, Brady then went on to adopt internationally as well as through the US foster care system and subsequently set up a charity, Rod's Heroes, that helps find families for children with Down syndrome who aren't living with their parents. Brady is open and honest in relation to his beliefs and his motivation and is very comfortable to engage in discussion. There are many strands to the story and we really hope you enjoy it. As always, if you've experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through our Facebook page, Twitter, or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so my name's Brady Murray. I live in the United States in the state of Utah. I would say best to describe myself, I am an adoptee. I was adopted uh, when I was 13 years old. Um, I was actually born Brady Gomez and am now Brady Murray. I am, have been happily married for 21 years now. Uh, my wife and I have seven beautiful, amazing children, uh, three of which are adopted. Um, two children we adopted through foster care here in the United States. One child we adopted from China uh, when he was uh, four years old. And so uh, in addition to that, we're in the process of adopting four more children uh, from Columbia, a sibling group of four, ages 16, 14, 11, and nine. So that'll give us 11 kids, which is even weird here in Utah. Utah is famous for lots of uh, kids and families, big families, yeah. but 11 is even a lot here in Utah. So that's a little bit about my background. I mean, there's a, this podcast could go in so many directions. Right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, there's like, there's maybe five or six episodes in, in all of that. So, can, but can I start at the beginning? Because again, you talked about being, um, you know, Brady Gomez, this 13 yes. year old boy, which in the, from a UK perspective, we talk about children being old adoptees when they're six, uh -huh. you know, children being adopted at that age. So, 13, tell me. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of a unique. Okay unique situation. My uh, mother uh, and my father were married at a very young age and they had me. And after I was two months old, they separated and they got divorced. And so I went with my mother and my father, Danny Gomez, um, went, you know, a separate way. Uh, we still have a great relationship still to this day. Um, he uh, was an active part in my life all growing up. And so the question has to be asked, well, how did the adoption thing come about then? And so my mother yeah. met a man by the name of Reed Murray when I was about four years old. And Reed and I hit it off right from the get-go. In fact, my mom often says that she believes that my dad, Reed, wanted to marry her more so because he liked me so much. And, uh, and the fact that he got to marry my mom was a secondary benefit to getting to be a dad to me. And so Reed uh, was very much a father figure to me right from the get-go. Um, my earliest memories are of my father, Reed, and him caring for me. And it's kind of a unique thing. So my family, the Gomez family, my grandparents were English was a second language. Um, they spoke Spanish. 
And uh, so I would consider myself Latino in that respect. And my father, my adoptive father, Reed Murray, is a big, tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, about as American looking as you could possibly get. And so we looked a lot different, but we were very, very close in that regard. And so um, throughout my childhood, I always called him dad. And um, when I was about the age of call it 12 or 13, I just felt strongly in my heart that I wanted to make it official and have him adopt me. And uh, so I asked him if he'd be open to that. He was very excited when I asked him that. And that's how I got adopted. Yeah. I mean, that that's, you know, quite remarkable because being led by yourself, was that complicated in relation to your, you know, your biological dad says you kind of, you were, you maintained that contact with him. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I consider myself of having two fathers and I would see my biological father two or three times a year on average growing up. And those times would be typically on a Friday evening. He would pick me up on his way home from work. He worked far away from his house and he would travel long distances uh, to come home on the weekends and he would make we lived a number of hours away from each other. So he'd make his way to my house, pick me up on a Friday after work and I'd be with him Saturday. And then on Sunday, when he's going back to another state to work, he'd take me back home. So our, our time together would typically be 36 to 48 hours maximum. And we would do that typically two to three times a week. And one thing that I love about my birth father, Danny, is that he was always extremely supportive of me and he was very appreciative of Reed and the work that Reed, my adoptive father, was doing on my behalf. I wouldn't say that they were friends by any means. Um, there's complications, as you can imagine, that are associated with that. But Danny, my my biological father, was always very, very appreciative of, of my dad, Reed. And so when I remember when I asked my dad, Danny, my biological father, for his blessing. Um, I was, I was physically ill, uh, leading up to that. I was very nervous. I could only imagine what that might be like for him because I knew my dad loved me very much. I knew that. And even though we weren't together often, I knew he loved me. And, uh, I remember my, uh, talking to my mom about that. And she said, when you're ready, I'll, I'll call him and then I'll hand the phone to you and you can talk to him. And, Seriously, I was physically ill on that moment. And my mom pushed the buttons on the phone and handed me the phone and I could hear my dad's voice on the other side. And, uh, I, you know, I was 13 years old. I was awkward, like awkward 13 yeah. year old that you could imagine. <laughs> and I just remember saying, dad, I, I want to, I want to get adopted by Reed. And I want to ask if you would be okay with that. And, uh, he showed how a father's love works. And he, without reservation, said, son, I want more than anything for you to be happy. And if this is what you want, this is what I want for you. And I 100% will support you. And it's okay. You call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. And Mm. just know that you'll always be my son. I will always be your father. And that nothing can ever change that. And he gave me his blessing. And so that was a that was an example for me of a father's love. And uh, I'm extremely thankful for my dad for doing that for me. I mean, it is, it's remarkable. And it sounds, you know, that that relationship, those, that sort of three-way relationship, you know, potentially you've got the best of all worlds there. 
That's exactly right. I feel, I feel like I truly am one person that has two fathers and I've, I've been blessed to have two dads. Hmm. So I'm going to, was that complicated from the point of view of your, your, your origins or was it just that because you could hold the two, these two sort of streams, these two identities that they made a third, did other children, were there other children okay yeah, it, with that? It, I would say, uh, I would say that it was very complicated and it still, even to this day is complicated. I'm 44 years old now. Um, and there's, there's still complications that exist within that. Mm. Um, I, I remember, so growing up in the eighties and the early nineties as Brady Gomez, um, in a very small rural farming community, um, that at the time existed a fair amount of racism. And so immigrant workers would come from Mexico and from, from, so Latinos would come from, you know, South of the border and come up there and work. And oftentimes in the culture, as, as much as I hate to admit this as part of that culture, they were looked down upon and there were derogatory things that were said or they, they were treated. And I remember being um, not actually liking to go by the name of Brady Gomez growing up because of the, you know, the target that that would put on my back yeah. for my classmate of, you know, me. And so that was a complicated thing. And then um, growing up and, and getting to adulthood and then actually really gaining an understanding of my family heritage and where my family came from and like the work ethic that exists within my family, that was a, like an empowering experience to be able to learn about that, learn about my forefathers, learn about how hard worker my father, my uncles, my grandparents, et cetera, were. And that has become an integral part of who I am. And so a part of me longs to have that, that, Gomez name in that respect. And then in in the other aspect of it, that everything that I was entrusted and blessed with growing up came from my Murray family and my father, Reed. And so it's a very complicated thing, definitely. And I can respect and understand and appreciate how adoptees feel, um, because I feel very much the same way in in many regards. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but feel like you've got such an informed position, haven't you, in relation to you as a, then becoming an adoptive parent. So I'm going to turn, I'm conscious there's an awful lot of ground because I feel like we're skimming across these issues. We could, <laughs> we could stay here and have a right good natter. Um, so then you, you get married. Uh, I mean, you get married and what you have your own children, but I had adoption, yeah. your, the idea to adoption, had that always been floating around or was that just something that was, you'd kind of parked somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when Andrea and I, my, my amazing wife, my soulmate, when we were dating, um, we spoke openly about adoption and, uh, we both knew that that was something that we felt like we were going to do. And for me, I loved the idea of adoption because of what a blessing adoption was in my life and what a blessing read my adopted father was in my life and still is still to this day. And I believe in this idea of of, um, serving the pain that you know best and that we're entrusted with these types of hardships or life experiences for the blessing of being able to serve other people and help other people that are facing a similar circumstance to be able to get through that. 
So adoption was something I definitely wanted to do and Andrea wanted to do. And so it only seemed natural that we would adopt. And lo and behold, here we are on the verge of having 11 kids with seven of them being adopted. I wouldn't have guessed that. I'll say that. <laughs> I couldn't have seen yeah, that that's... when we were first married. <laughs> yeah, that that little acorn has grown into some, not just a tree, a sort of little forest. <laughs> that's um, right. For sure. Um, so can you run me through then the because the process of you, you know, you talked about it being, you know, you have your own children, which is, you know, in of itself, not a, no mean feat. Um, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a little gaggle of kids there. And what was the kind of the spark that said, actually, now we need to, you know, did you become foster carers after that? Yeah. Yeah. So there was three sparks that actually happened in our journey thus far. The first was our son, our first son was born. So we have four biological children, one daughter, our oldest, three sons. Our first son was born and this was in 2007. And about 10 minutes after Nash was born, we found out that he has Down syndrome. And right. that uh, that was something that I didn't, I wasn't prepared for. Um, that was something that created significant raw emotion within me. And yeah. uh, under this concept of serving the pain that I know best, my wife and I um, knew that that this was potentially a hardship, but we also felt in our hearts that this could be a tremendous blessing. And so we leaned in, we were all in, and we got very involved with the Down syndrome community. And when Nash was four, so over the, last, over the first four years, we were just so involved in the Down syndrome community. We learned about uh, what transpires for children like our son in many developing countries, which is when a diagnosis of Down syndrome or a similar disability is given, that oftentimes the family will immediately abandon that child. And so in 2011, we started a nonprofit organization to help orphaned children that have Down syndrome find a loving home. And uh, that actually, we've been doing that now since 2011. We've helped just shy of 100 kids with Down syndrome get adopted. And one of those children, ironically enough, is our son. So we adopted another boy with Down syndrome in 2016 from China. And uh, his name is Cooper. And he's just a rock star. So that was our first introduction into adoption. And and so the second... I'm going to have to ask some questions here because there's there's so much going on. There is literally there's so much going on, right? So yeah. you, you're obviously your first son is born. And, and as you say, the, um, I, I can't begin to imagine the sort of the shock, the palpable shock yeah. and just life turned on a, on a dime. Um, See... So I'm down with the Americans there. Dime. I was That's right. Penny, good job. Dime. I didn't yeah. connect oh. that. You are down. That's good. <laughs> I tell you, I'm on fire. Um, <laughs> so you, that turns your life around. And um, and as you say, some people respond to that really, you know, differently. You know, the, but you don't know what you're going to, how you're going to respond to what is a life altering experience. Um, but then you went on to have three more biological children amidst that. Yeah. Is that yeah, we had, well, I guess we had two more biological children. So daughter, son, and then two biological sons after that. So we have four biological kids. Right. So that's, I mean, a lot of people kind of go, that's, that's a good, that's a good family. There's a lot going on there and, you know, and, it, and you've got a child with additional needs. Some people will kind of go, well, hey, you know, we've, we've, that's it. We've got the, you know, we've got the Murray brood here. Everything's, yeah, right. everything's fine. What then, you know, 
I'm just intrigued to know how, how yeah. the next step really that that, 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 so, that inspires you to keep going. Yeah, we're not we, busy uh, enough. We uh, when we had those promptings, those feelings come in our heart when we had four children that we should consider adoption. We knew we knew we wanted to adopt, and we were great having five children or even six children. My wife always said, "I want five children," so it just made sense that we would adopt. And so yeah. we uh, believe wholeheartedly in uh, prayer and in meditation, and just in really trying to seek out what we're supposed to be doing. And so, as we really sought in our quiet moments in our life what we were supposed to do the feeling came in our heart that we should consider adopting a child with down syndrome, another having, so yeah. having two. And I'll tell you right now, that was not logical. That, that was, that was not logical. And I'm a very logical yeah. person. I'm a planner and you know, one plus one in that case did not equal two. This was just not something that seemed like we should do, but yet yeah. every time that I sought just, guidance and inspiration to know what I was supposed to do and, and follow that in my heart, it just became clear in my mind and in my heart that we were supposed to adopt another child with Down syndrome. And so I was a bit fearful. Um, I, I felt inadequate. I felt unprepared, but I knew in my heart that's what I was supposed to do. So we went for it. And fast forward now, Cooper's been with this the last six years. It's almost seven years now. And he is just, I can't imagine my life without my son, Cooper. And uh, I wouldn't trade him for anything in the world. So it was absolutely the right decision, even though it was not logical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. Sometimes things don't have to make sense to make sense, do they? If, if, if you know right. what I mean. That's right. Um, can I then, I think from a, and I'll talk from a UK perspective and ask questions. I'm thinking that people from a UK position would be thinking is that you, obviously Cooper was uh, born in China. Yep. Um, and you, you know, you, you already talked about some of your experiences of, you know, racism and kind of and prejudice and stereotyping because of, you know, your, even just your surname. Was there an, an awareness of that, you know, in some ways you're dislocating this little boy from a, a country, a culture, yeah. faith, you got, you got two things going against you there. Um, so he has Down syndrome, number one, which he is is a target in many circumstances. Number yeah. two, he's from a different culture. And so it's very clear when you see Cooper that he's Chinese and we're not. And so that's the second thing that he has uh, going for him. And I would probably even add a third one. He's adopted, which oftentimes can be a target for kids to make yeah. fun of other kids or for, you know, things to be looked down upon. And so there's three things that are going in the face of that. But what I, what I find is in those circumstances, the Trump card, the thing that is bigger, more important than anything is what is it that you are feeling called to do in your heart? And if you feel like you're supposed to do something, it doesn't matter. All those other things, the obstacles, the hurdles, the things that are not logical, those things mm -hmm. don't matter if you truly feel in your heart, this is what you're supposed to do. Does it make yeah. it that it's going to be easy? No. In fact, it's guaranteed to be hard and it's going to get you way outside your comfort zone and you're going to experience a lot of internal discomfort. But you know what? There's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. So cowboy up, <laughs> let's go get it done.
If I had a Stetson, I'd be waving it at that point. Um, I don't. Um, I'm English, you know. Um, I guess my counter to that, if I if I can add a bit of sandpaper to the conversation, a bit of grit Please. in this conversation, is that that you answered that question in relation to your experience of difficult. You you highlighted his issues and then said, "But I'm up for that." What would it? I mean, and he's a child, you know, and he's a child with additional needs. So his, pers- I'm just conscious that. You're you're making all the decisions for this little boy, and as, you know what would be the to paint me a broader picture. What would be the outcomes for a little boy with Down syndrome in China? Yeah, so Cooper was uh, found on a street corner of in a city of 14 million people in the early morning hours when he was guesstimated to be six months old, and so he was. Uh, the authorities were called. Uh, they came and they picked him up and they took him to an orphanage. And that's where he stayed until we adopted him. And so right now, as you may be aware, uh, international and really adoptions are shut down in China. And so had Mm -hmm. we not adopted him, Cooper would still be there. He's 11 years old right now. And the reality is it's possible that Cooper would have been fine. And it's possible that Cooper would be happy and that he would be being fed well and he would be living his own little life in his own little orphanage. But here's Mm. what would have been missed out. Over the last six years, Cooper has done an incredible work, a work here in his family, a work here in his community, and even to the extent a work within our state and even within our nation. Cooper has been featured on different news stations. Um, He's going to throw out the first pitch at a Major League Baseball game this year, the Chicago Cubs. And he he is, in his own right, advocating for children that are just like him. And so uh, I believe Cooper would have been okay had he stayed in the orphanage, but he never would have sung the song that he was meant to sing. And I believe that that's one of the miracles that does come from adoption when done appropriately and in the right context. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I am, if, if I can be honest, that there's a lot of things there that culturally just kind of go against the UK, a UK perspective. Um, so I'm, you know, please, I'm not trying to kind of just be asking that, difficult that's questions. That's a beautiful you know, thing is I love it. Like, Ask, right. ask all the hard questions. And so right. any, anybody that's listening that said, yeah, but this, like ask that question, ask the hardest questions that you want. No offense will ever be taken. Right. Be careful. I, I've, I'm, I've got a genuine flair for offending people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I don't want to do that. Cause I think I, I think I look at, you know, and, I, and I've, I I've watched a podcast, another you know, podcast you were on, just because you you sort of invited me to do that, um, yep. and I think that we, we can't sort of separate your faith from your perspective and from your decision making process, can we? And I I wouldn't try to, and you've you've fair. hinted at it. And <laughs> um, yeah, I think so that's fair. Um, and that's you know that's fine, but I think from a what I'm thinking about is for Cooper is that. Why? Well, I'm dancing around my questions, aren't I? You can see I'm trying to put them in a way that doesn't cause offense. And no, no one of the things I see be... online, right? Okay, well, we'll just you know we can sort it out at the end. And um, 
one of the con- one of the criticisms I see of adoption generally, you know, and I'm an adoptive parent, so I'm not sitting here like holier than thou. I yeah. see is the the you know I said the man with six adopted children. It's not a competition, but you're winning. Um, <laughs> is that the, one of the criticisms is that um, from a faith perspective is that sometimes adopted children can sometimes be seen as trophies of yeah. people's righteousness. Yeah, uh, that actually Cooper's. From an adoptee perspective, you know, a, a critical adoptee perspective, we'll be going, well, hang on, isn't this little boy, how, how uh, the age he is and given his additional needs, how much does he know, does he understand, you know, about what sure. role he's playing in your, uh, I'm going to use the word ministry or your project? Mm-hmm. Is that, a, that's an ugly question, but I'll, I'll yeah, leave it I out think- there. I think that's a fair question. And, and really what, maybe if I restate the question and tell me if I'm in the right, in the right vein here, the question would be, all right, that's, that's great. What you're doing, Brady and great. You're helping these kids, but like how much of a say does Cooper really have? And has he had in, in being part of your agenda? And your agenda being, you know, take it from a faith standpoint, you're you're feeling called to do something to help other kids. And Cooper's just a kind of a tool in the tool belt to help you do what you feel like you're supposed to be doing your own ministry. And yeah. I've heard lots in regards to uh, this term and this concept of like white savior complex or really yeah. the you take a typical like Caucasian or even a, a Caucasian American that has financial means that is, you know, really trying to help the world. But in, in the end, they're just trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah. So that, that's really what the the vein is of what I feel like the question is. And I, and I want to say, yeah, I love it. Please keep asking questions of this nature <laughs> because I have zero, nothing to hide. And I will openly speak from the heart as to what this is. Here it is. I believe that everybody, everybody has the ability to help our teammates. And when I say teammates, I mean other people in the world that are our brothers and our sisters, that are our teammates. I believe that all of us have an opportunity to do something around lifting where we stand. So imagine we have a big piano and we need to move the piano from this end of the room over to the other <laughs> end. And we all stand around it. Everybody has to lift where they stand at the same time and in unison as teammates to get that piano to move across the other to the other side of the room. I believe everybody has the opportunity to lift where they stand. And for me, I felt in my heart, whether that uh, whether somebody is a believer in God or they believe in karma or they believe in Buddha or they believe in energy or they don't believe in any of that. I believe that everybody in their heart has a conscience and they know right from wrong. And I believe in my heart, I was being called, I was being told that I'm supposed to travel to Tianjin, China and adopt this child. And that as part of doing that, it is going to allow him, allow him, not me, allow him to sing the song that he is meant to sing because Cooper was placed on the earth for a purpose The same as you, you were placed on the earth for a purpose. And that purpose is to help other people to serve and bless our teammates. And by doing so, that's ultimately how we find the ultimate happiness, how we find the most joy in this life. 
in the service of others? I mean, that's a great answer. I'm not sure that was the question. Okay. I think it was a... Fire away. <laughs> uh, give me another well, no, question. I think <laughs> the way you articulated the question back to me when I asked it, that, I think that was exactly right. But I'm not sure that um, I think it's a good answer. Okay, good. But maybe I'm not sure it's the I'm not sure it's the question. The question is about um, his choice, yeah. um, and his um, informed consent. Yeah. Um, well, and it's something that I've vexed yeah, around let's, with let's my own talk children about that. the The choice really started. Okay, the choice, the choice for Cooper was taken away when he was left on a street corner. Okay, so when when referencing yeah. choice. And Cooper's involvement in this choice. See, he was entrusted to a family in China that ultimately chose to abandon him and leave him on a street corner, which put him into a circumstance where his choices ultimately were removed. The other aspect of this yeah. is Cooper was born with a cognitive disability, with Down syndrome, which limits his ability to care for himself. And so that also was not his choice. And so in dealing with the circumstance like Cooper, where he's never going to go out and be gainfully employed and take care of himself, it's not like he would have reached the age of 18 in China and moved out and got a job yeah. and got married and, and, and move you know, forward in his culture. There are limitations that existed within Cooper as it relates to choices. And so that's very different than what I would say with a lot of other adoptees that uh, myself included. Um, that uh, that they would face when dealing with that question of choice. How much involvement did Cooper actually have in the choice that he had? It's a complicated yeah. question for sure, but that's my feeling on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I don't think there's necessarily an answer. You know, I don't think that there's a, you know, I, I could imagine that pe I, in my head, I've got two people listening. Some people going, yeah, I get it. Like a pragmatic response to a child who's finds that you, he doesn't find himself anywhere. He is at the bottom rung that's where he's at in life and you've yeah. given them an opportunity to make a way out of that. And also I've no, I've no understanding of any sort of social care. What happened, like I say, what happens to a child at 18, like Cooper or a young, a young person, yeah. an adult in China? Yeah. No idea. You don't have to, you know, watch the news. Maybe I've got an idea. Yeah. Um, it's pretty grim, but I guess maybe the, so, and, and so I'm not, you're not here to be grilled, you know, you're not here to kind of give an apology for your life. You know, it's not, that's not what you signed up for. Um, so I do have some other thoughts, but I will get, maybe get back to them. So you then, you, Cooper, you bring Cooper in and then, you, then you become foster carers. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Before we, <laughs> we share on foster care, because I think that'll open up a yeah. whole other opportunity for similar dialogue. <laughs> I do want to say, um, so my nonprofit organization, Rod's Heroes, our core mission, the ultimate mission, is to inspire families to keep their children and to have them right. have the resources that they need in order to keep their children. I believe I have no way of proving this other than it's what I feel in my heart. I believe that Cooper's mother, when she made the decision for her child to be left on that street corner that early morning, I believe that she was doing what she felt like was in the best interest of her child. I have no way of proving that other than what I feel in my heart. And so I have zero judgment to her. I believe someday I hope to get to meet her or I will get to meet her, whether in this life or in the life to come. And I'm going to give her a great big hug and I'm going to thank her for giving life 
and taking care yeah. of our little boy for the first six months of his life. And she just passed yeah. the baton on to us and together. And I mean this together as teammates, we are raising this child together. And again, whether I meet her in this life or in the life to come, I love this woman and I can't wait to put my arm around her and, and share with her all the things that I've learned about our son. I think that's a really valid point, isn't it? Because in relation to, it's easy, it's easy to sit here and have a conversation about what ifs and buts and what if this, you know, but actually the reality is for Cooper that that's the situation. And as you say that, did his mother have a choice? Probably not. Or, or a choice so restricted we don't know. And that's right. Maybe we don't know her said. circumstances. I mean, she's in a culture where one child has been the norm for decades, for generations. And that child is your legacy. Oftentimes that child is how you continue on in life and they care for their parents. And so to be faced with a child that has Down syndrome, I have no idea how I would have reacted had I been put in the exact same circumstances. Yeah. So I have zero judgment towards her. Yeah. So, and so I think on it, to foster care. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to, but I'm still. And <laughs> um, so I think that I think it is worth noting that that because in a part of my thinking was well, we know now we're moving forwards. When we get to the, the your last child, you know, again, you you're hoping to adopt. I find it really interesting that actually your ultimate aspiration is to help children remain where they with their families, yeah. and that that's it. So number okay. one, inspire families to keep children. And to have and inspire governments and cultures and society and communities to support families to be able to mm. keep children and raise children. If that doesn't work, then my ultimate, my second ultimate goal would be that that child is adopted or brought in by another family member or by a school teacher or by somebody whom they already know and love, and that they get to stay in their community, in their culture speaking the, the language they were grown up with and that that is an integral part of who they are. And only third, only as a last resort is that a child would be adopted by a family internationally, but the core principle being that every child deserves to be raised in a loving family by loving parents. Yeah. That's the core yeah. principle. And I don't think anyone could, anyone could sort of point at that, that aspiration, those, those three principles um, or those three, you know, goals, um, and kind of kick up a fuss really. Um, and, the, and I think oftentimes that people looking into, into situations like your family life and my family life, people, they're talking in hypotheticals, you know, ifs and buts and, but that's not the reality for our children, is it? It's, that's right. The core principle it, being it above anything and everything is that every child deserves to be raised in a loving home by loving parents, period. Yeah. And yeah. we as a society, we as a world, have a responsibility to help assure that that happens. And that's going to yeah. be done in many different ways for many different people. But that's the core principle of what we're really focused on. Yeah. Oh, finally, we agree. Um, <laughs> this is fun. I love this, um, by the way. You're great. I'm thankful for thank you. talking with you. Um, so tell me then about foster care. So by now you've got five children and you've got two children with additional needs. Um, so, yeah. you know, where's the spare time where you think, you know what we need? We need a hobby. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll share with you uh, something I've learned about that. And it's a principle of more leads to more. 
And right. so what we find, you could use an exercise example. If somebody does uh, push-ups every single morning, then by doing that week after week, month after month, you're going to be able to do more push-ups. And what I find is more leads to more. And I find that Andrea and I, we leaned into serving and under this belief that every child deserves to be raised in a loving home, we felt called, we felt in our hearts that we were supposed to do foster care. And this was instigated yeah. by my wife. Um, this was something that she had actually spoke with me about 21 years ago when we were first married. Um, we were having challenges having biological children with infertility. We went almost four years before we had our first child, had multiple miscarriages, and it was a complicated time for us. And that's when the when Andrea first brought up this idea around foster care. And I remember my reaction to that. It was not only a no, but it was like a heck no. I had a visceral reaction of no, I do not want to do foster care. And so that's why that's how that started 21 years ago. <laughs> And as, as things transpire and as my heart softened and as I became uh, maybe more mature in my decision-making process, it came to a point where Andrea came to me again and encouraged me to, to do what I do when I make these important decisions, which is, as I share, a lot of prayer and meditation and just trying to seek out what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I felt in my heart that that was something that we were supposed to do. And so we went through the classes and it was it was hard because <laughs> <laughs> I've got a full-time job and then I just, and we've got all these kids and the classes were in the nights and I travel a lot for work. Like there was a lot that was associated with that, but in the end we, uh, we became eligible and uh, we became foster parents. So can I, you tell me what your reluctance was, was, you know, it, why would, did you have the, you talked about a visceral reaction? Yeah. No. I had a lot of, uh, I, I had, I would say it was driven primarily by fear and fear of ever putting my other children at risk, fear of yeah. what could potentially come as a result of opening up our lives to other parents who had just lost their children. And, you know, yeah. we, we weren't going into foster care to adopt, by the way, we were going into foster children and to help children. Yeah. So here in the state of Utah, if a family, if a parent is getting a D minus grade, I don't know how you guys get graded over there, but a D is really bad. An F is fail, right? But a D minus grade, which is like the worst of the worst almost, if they're getting that, they keep their parent, their child. It's only yeah. when they cross over to complete failure that they lose their child. And so I was fearful of what that could introduce into my family. Yeah. And quite frankly, I was not educated. I really wasn't educated as to foster care. And those were the reasons why I didn't want to do it. And so once I uh, was able to overcome that, become more educated, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that's comparable to the UK is that a lot of people, when you, you we have lots of sort of lazy stereotypes, don't we, that, that are just part of our culture and our narrative, the yeah. media. Um, but as when you get to it, there's, Kids are kids. You know, That's but, right. I love that. Um, you are right. Um, so you then, and you see so you're then licensed foster carers yep. and you, so tell me about the process of, do you get, in the UK, we say to foster carers, would you take this child and we get a choice in that? Is that yes. the same for you? 
That's exactly the same. So I was uh, on a fishing trip with my son, uh, Ridge, who's my middle child. And we were out of town for a week and we had become licensed foster parents, my wife and I. And uh, I called home one evening and said, hey, how's it going? And Andrea said, well, we, we uh, had a family services call and they said that they have two little girls, ages two and one, that um, just came into foster care. Their mom was driving through the state. So from a different state, like 10 hours away, driving home, got in a car wreck, was found to be high on drugs and had drugs in the car. And she went to jail and these little girls needed a place to stay. And they wanted us, they want us to, to foster them. And she, and I said, well, great. What do you think? And she said, well, they're already here. I told them it would be great. I'm like, all right, <laughs> no problem. We're in. I'm in. And so um, that was, our, wife that was must our never meet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be dangerous, our wives together. Um, <laughs> yep. So you and come so, home uh, from you, your fishing trip and you discover two little girls. So what, you know, yeah, that must have been a, and, a new uh, experience. Yep. The older girl, um, Willow, was just pretty awesome. Like she, she was chumming up with the other kids and they were having a great time. But the little girl, Livy, um, Olivia, she, uh, immediately upon seeing me was screaming and, um, like ran for Andrea was holding onto her leg, like clenching onto her leg, shaking. And, uh, I hadn't even said a word to her and, and I asked, what's going on? And she said, don't take it personal. Every single time she sees a man, that's how she reacts. And mm -hmm. so um, obviously we don't know the, the story of what caused that, but we can piece whatever we can together. So we yeah. were told these girls were going to be with us for a week, maybe two weeks maximum, because they were going to be uh, moved to their proper state where they were. And uh, two weeks turned into three years and we adopted them. And so that's yeah. how that works sometimes. Uh, something unique about these girls, their father is African-American, he's black, and their mother is Caucasian. And so in looking at these girls, they definitely look like, and they are, you know, uh, black. And so that's definitely a unique thing with a, a different race being introduced into the mix with Cooper being from China and our little girls uh, being uh, African-American and then you got us. And I guess I'm half Latino as well. So we've got a good mix going on. You're like the United Nations. And that's right. I mean, my, my geography of uh, UK, uh, US geography is not great, but Utah is quite a white, is it a white state? Would that yes, be? No, very much so. Generally. Yeah. yeah very so much that, so. And so that must raise complications in that you're not anonymous. You yeah. can't. You, your presence demands a question, doesn't it? Yeah, so is that, right. Have you had problems with that in different places you've gone, or has it raised sort of eyebrows? No, I, I mean, I'm sure people have questioned or thought. Um, there has been some funny questions around uh, Andrea, like in doctor's uh, appointments and so forth, and saying, you know, things around, you know, the fathers or something of that nature. And she's like, no, let, let me explain. And uh, yeah. And so she's had kind of some fun things with that. But by and large, um, in our community, people are very accepting um, and, and really hasn't created much of an issue. I will say I fully expect that my little girls will experience that, though. 
Um, mm -hmm. I know they'll experience that growing up. And um, that's that's a real thing. Yeah. And so do you, um, I mean, how do you manage that? Is that something that you've given thought to? Because they're still, they must be still quite little. Um, but you're preparing them for the world out there. Yeah, they're six and five. And something that I believe wholeheartedly in is that uh, I made it a point and a commitment when before we even had our first placement that I would never villainize my foster child's parents. I would never say a single thing that's negative. I would never speak poorly about them because those parents are heroes in my child's eyes. And as I had yeah. shared before, I'm a teammate with that parent. And so we've actually become very close with our girl's biological mother. And in fact, she asked us if we would adopt her children. And so after a year and a half of fostering, she came to us and asked us if we would adopt her children. Again, our intention all along was reunification. Yeah. So that again, books this, you sort of, on paper, you could be described as this kind of, um, you know, this all American family who's got this, you know, this, this collection of children from across the world. <laughs> um, and also, you know, with, from a faith perspective, very much that model of, you know, the, like you say, the white savior, but actually when you start to scratch beneath the surface, there's a whole lot more going on here, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. And it, it started with the day I was born that I began being mm. trusted with life experiences that prepared me to pay it forward, to serve the pain that I know best. And here I am as a result of parents that uh, allowed me to be able to be part of their family, their life, and not defining whether or not I was their son based on blood. And so that has afforded me life experiences that has got me to a position where I'm paying that forward. I'm serving the pain I know best. And I would expect that many of my children will be adoptive parents as well. And that, mm. that cycle in a positive way will continue. Yeah. So I'm doing my maths. I've got a pen and paper and I, I believe we're up to six children. So come on, how do we get up to 11? So you then, that's, did you then go back to seven? Yeah, that's seven. Is so seven? we had the four bios. Yep. And then we had Cooper. That was five. Yep. Cooper's our yep. boy from China. And then we had two little girls from uh, foster care. So oh, we yeah. are in the process through our nonprofit. We had the opportunity to travel to Columbia this last year and meet many children who are in desperate need of a family. And again, I want to reemphasize our goal is, is that these children would be adopted by family members. And if that's not the option, then they would be adopted by a Colombian. And if that's not an option, only worst case scenario would uh, they be adopted internationally. And that's the circumstance with these children that we're adopting. It's a sibling group of four. Um, in Colombia, children will age out they get to a certain age and they're no longer eligible for adoption and they'll split up the family. And so when we met these kids, Andrea and I knew that time was of the essence. And uh, again, it was not logical. It did not make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense on paper, but it made all the sense in our hearts. And so we're proceeding with adopting these children. We hope to have them home late summer, early fall, and uh, they don't speak a lick of English. 
And we, I thankfully speak Spanish, uh, but nobody else in my family speaks Spanish. And I know we're in for an adventure and probably a lot of heartache and some challenges for them and for us. But we feel like it's what we're supposed to do. So come what may, we're going to go forward in faith and and make it happen. Yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, I'd love to be a fly in the wall. Uh, you should start a documentary. Um, I'm thinking about <laughs> it. <laughs> a YouTube channel um, or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, that it's interesting you say that because just thinking about some of the trouble people have got themselves into by doing that exactly that, haven't they? You know, <laughs> yeah, when things right. have got... So, so I think... Think long and hard. Get some good advice. I will. <laughs> I'll answer it if I, I will only do that if I feel like I'm supposed to do that. And for no other reason, for the betterment of other people and for, for good. Yeah. I mean, so the, in some ways, we're not, we don't find you at the end of a story. We find you very much in the middle of a story. There's a lot I'd of, say there's it's a lot. Half time. <laughs> yeah. There's, even with the children you've got, there's, there's children with, complex needs even though they may not be biological needs they've got complex emotional identity you know that's right ethnicity needs and it impacts our biological kids too like it it impacts our biological kids just as much as it does our adoptive kids yeah because i I, i'm a social worker and i could in, in my head i sort of often i talk to people i think if i was having to do an assessment on this family what would i find (laughs) <laughs> and it it seems to me like you and you and Andrea, you sounds like you must be. It is a full time job. I mean, parenting is a full time job, but this seems like that. How do you find the time to go to work? And if I'm being really honest, where do you find the money? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, great question. Um, I I work really hard, and um, I grew up with nothing. Um, meaning we were not financially well off. Um, something I haven't, I have not shared is that my parents, my adoptive father and my mother divorced when I was 16 years old and I stayed with my adoptive father. And I remember clearly, uh, late nights hearing them argue about money. Mm -hmm. And so that was a contributing factor to them divorcing is we just were not in a great place. And so when Andrea and I married, I had a negative net worth. I had a student loan and that's, that's it. That's what I brought to the table. And, uh, and so I, um, I've worked really hard and as a result of, of hard work and, and also just tender mercies, we've been blessed to be able to have a wonderful business that has been able to provide for our financial means. And, uh, that's a whole nother podcast that I'd love to share with you on (laughs) my belief and feelings towards wealth and towards finances. But we have had uh, been blessed with some financial means that have allowed us to do this. But I I work super hard. And I mean, I, I don't turn it off. And so the way I've been able to manage through that is I win the morning every morning. And I get up really early. And I spend time in prayer and meditation. I read and seek light and knowledge through different books. I believe wholeheartedly that the person we become is determined by the books we read and the people we surround ourselves with. And then I work out and I work out really hard. And then I spend the entire day trying to uh, eat clean and take care of myself. And uh, I instill these habits with my children. My children win the morning every morning with me. And um, it's not perfect by any means. There's tears some mornings and some mornings there's not. 
but uh, that's how we manage through it and mm. it, it works. Yeah, well, yeah, clearly it's working, you know, and, you know, it, it is interesting listening to you talk from, and from a UK perspective, all of that stuff sounds really quite, um, and we're not, you know, we're culturally miles apart, but it's just really interesting to see it get beneath some of that language and stuff and see that what's going on and, you know, what is truly a really remarkable family. Um, tell me where people can kind of hook into the work that you're doing in relation to, you know, supporting families and, you know, yeah. children with additional needs. Thank you for asking. Our website is rods.org, R-O-D-S.org. And uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram at Brady Murray 21. So at Brady Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y 21. And those are the two best ways to get in touch with us. Excellent. And um, I can ask who Rods is. What does Rods do? Yeah, stand for? so that's a whole other story we haven't even got into. <laughs> when when Andrea and I felt like we needed to help children that have Down syndrome that are orphans, Andrea challenged me at the time to do an Ironman triathlon. And so an Ironman triathlon, I apologize, I only know it in mileage, not in kilometers, but in mileage, it's you swim 2.4 miles, you bike 112 miles, and then you run a marathon. And that's that's what you do to do an Ironman. And yeah. I had never done that before. I had dabbled in small triathlons. And uh, honestly, the thought of doing a full Ironman just scared me to death. I didn't think I could do it, physically do it. But when Andrea challenged me to do that, to raise awareness and funding around this, uh, I felt, I felt challenged. I felt called to go and do that. And so I started training and as I started to train, the news started to pick up on what I was doing, that I was doing an Ironman to help an orphaned kid with down syndrome. And I learned a very valuable principle during that experience. And that is that when you allow yourself to get caught up in a cause bigger than yourselves, you will witness miracles. And I witnessed a miracle. I'll never forget the day I got a phone call from a man that said, you don't know me, but we have a lot in common. He said, I have a son who has Down syndrome. I'm also an Ironman triathlete. And I happen to be the presenting sponsor of this year's Ironman World Championship. And I want to invite you to come to Kona, Hawaii and race in the Ironman World Championship. And we're going to feature your story on NBC, on national and international news media. And uh, that's how we started. And so the organization name started as Racing for Orphans with Down Syndrome, or in other words, R-O-D-S, Rods. That's yeah. where it came from. Crikey, you, you tick so many podcasting boxes. I'm sure there's Iron Man podcasts that could have on and all kinds of things. <laughs> there are. Um, this I will say, I uh, literally this last week uh, just finished a book. And it's a 65,000 word book. Uh, so that's about 200 pages. Translate that over. And it's in the editor's hands right now. I do plan on publishing that later this year uh, that basically documents this whole story because you're right. It's a lot of podcast episodes. <laughs> well, it's been absolutely lovely to hear from you. And I thank you. I really appreciate you being open and honest. And, you know, there's been a bit of grit absolutely. in some of that stuff. Um, and I'm sure there'll be people a lot more questions but uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, i really wish you me. and all of your family and you know andrea and all of the children I, I wish you absolute blessings and good luck in everything that you put your hands to so thank you very much 
Thank you so much. <laughs>